incredible, incredible stuff happening. All this is leading us into this week. Again, if you're getting fit, hopefully you're getting fit for something. Uh, Not fitness itself, but hopefully it's for functionality or for mission or uh, to accomplish something. If you're in a boot camp. How many of you have ever been in a military boot camp? I'm just curious. Okay. Okay, quite a a number. Okay. Um, If you're in a military boot camp, the boot Surviving boot camp might at some days seem like the goal itself, but it's not the goal. The goal is to get you in the kind of shape and the kind of readiness that you could be an effective soldier, an effective, uh, effective on your mission. And uh, so we've talked about these different things that Christ has done, but again, there's a battle coming, and today we're going to get into the battle in Luke chapter 4. So let's, let's read it, Luke chapter 4. I'll read, you guys can follow along. Um, in your Bibles, and it might be up on the screen too. So, Luke 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. We're gonna just, we'll stop. We're going to just go through it bit by bit here. Now, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's dependent on... God, um, that's implied with being full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Holy Spirit. So we see Jesus is really, he's aligned himself with his Father, he's an obedient son, he's living in dependence. Of course, Jesus, God, you know, God becoming man, this, this mystery, this incredible thing, God becoming man, and emptying himself, uh, so he's, he's divine, but yet he's human. He didn't just levitate to different locations or, or suddenly appear. He actually walked. Uh, he actually ate food. And he didn't eat food just because everyone else was eating food. He actually got hungry and his body needed food. Um, when people tried to throw him off a cliff, that was one of his first ministry experiences, he dodged and got out of there. Very human experiences. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. So he's fully human, but yet he's still dependent on God. He's living in this intimate relationship with his Father, which empowers him to do his mission. Here's something I'll just quickly say about Jesus. Everything Jesus does and says is um, to help us to trust him and also as an example for us. So everything we see in here, everything that we've been reading about him getting ready for his mission in the world, everything he does and said, it has two functions. One, it helps us to see that he is the savior that we need. He is the, the, the leader that we need. He is, he is God. He is the son of God. And we need, so we, we come to trust him. We see what he did through living a perfect life. We live how, see how he lived his life. Then we see how he died on the cross. That, all that at, on the first level most maybe most most crucial level is to cause us to trust him to not put our faith in ourselves to be our own saviors but to put our 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 trust in him on the second level it's an example for us so we see what he did he did some things we couldn't do obviously we couldn't earn our own salvation we couldn't be uh, the right sacrifice uh, that could atone for our own sins only he could do that so we see that on one level that he's done this to, to cause it, to instill faith in us so that we trust him. But on the other level, 
then we embrace very similar actions. Not because we're saviors of anybody else, but it's a blueprint for how to, to live your life. So you see, he suffers and gives his life for others, and then he calls us to be willing to embrace suffering in order to give our lives for others. So it would be simple to say Christians really should be people for others uh, because they're people for God, right? Because they were people for God first, they become people for others. Just like Jesus was totally submitted to his Father, totally in line with him, and, and then out of that relationship with the Father, lived his life sacrificially for you and me. So, just something to note. Every time you see Jesus saying something, every time you see Jesus doing something, he's giving, uh, it's so we'll trust him, and so we'll imitate him. Okay? So, we'll keep on going. So, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Another quick note. If you're following God, it does not mean the path is going to be easy. In fact, often it'll lead you into conflict with evil forces in the world. In fact, it should lead you into conflict with evil forces in the world. And this is what Jesus experienced. He's led by the Spirit into this encounter, into this, uh, into this experience. For 40 days, he's tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Doesn't every dare start like that? I mean, since you were in elementary school, didn't every single dare start with that same thing? If you are so brave, then stick your tongue to that pole. <laughs> now, how many would admit you did it? How many admit you stuck your tongue to something metal in the winter? Okay, not as many as really should be admitting it, because... <laughs> How many did it more than once? Who will admit that? Okay, now there is the real admission. <laughs> so if you're so smart, if you're so strong, if you're so brave, if you're so cool, prove it. And the devil is not above this same tactic. If you are the son of God. Now, what we've read already, the, the last two weeks we talked about how these things were confirming that he was the son of God. We see that God, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I well, well pleased. The father said that about him. And then we see that the genealogy list, listed after that. Genealogy, how boring. But it ends up, it starts with showing all these ancestors of Jesus. And at the very end it goes, Adam and then it goes, or son of this guy, son of this guy, son of Adam, son of God. The emphasis is coming out again and again and again that Jesus really is the son of God, and it gets attacked right away, right in the identity. That's where those dares, those attacks come. They come right in our identity. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Prove it. Prove it. Prove your God's son by having him provide for your need to eat. Surely the son of God shouldn't go hungry. Surely you have the right to be fed. Prove it. Now I'm going to give you one of the biggest tips right at the beginning here for if you're in a, that kind of temptation battle in your life. Uh, one of the best tips I can give you is 
the very first words that Jesus gives. Jesus answers, it is written. I'll stop there. We'll go further, but we'll stop there. One of the best things you can do when you're in a spiritual temptation in your life is to respond with what the Bible says, what the Word of God says. And not just anything in the Bible, but something that is a particular response to that. Now, I had thought maybe I would try to think of all the different temptations we could possibly face in our lives and then line them up with Scripture verses. And then I realized I am not going to be able to cover what you struggle with. There's probably stuff that you struggle with I don't, and there's probably stuff that you don't struggle with I do. So I thought it's, it's pretty hard for me to put myself in your shoes and get those all. But I did, there's a verse that I've used for several years, and I came across it years ago when I was um, reading some books on uh, sexual temptation for guys. And it's the verse, 1 Corinthians 6.20. Verse, 1 Corinthians 6.20, and I'll, we'll read uh, verse 19 as well. But I thought this verse is probably could be used for almost any temptation. Now, it's in the context of sexual temptation, but I'll, I'll read it to you. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. So, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, again, the original context I, I read that in or understood that in was a lot of guys were using this as a fighter verse in their lives when it came to, um, like, for example, they didn't want to uh, look at pornography. So they would say, okay, I need something when I'm in the heat of the battle, when I'm in that moment where I, I'm, I'm really tempted to look at pornography and yet I don't want to. And now this is, this is coupled together with lots of strategy, right? Like you, lots of times I remember me and other guys, we'd sit down and we'd say, well, you know, when do we get tempted? Well, let's, let's unmask that. Let's figure that out. What time of day it is? Are we alone? Uh, where are we? Is that, is that a computer thing? Is that a, is that a you know, is it the HALT? You know what HALT stands for? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. When I'm hungry, when I'm angry, when I'm lonely, when I'm tired, that's when temptation hits hardest. So I'm just going to avoid being hungry, <laughs> and I can avoid, right? I avoid. I try to get away from you know, when, or be aware that when I'm hungry, I'm I'm weak. When I'm angry, I'm weak. When I'm lonely, I'm weak. And when I'm tired, I'm weak. So what? But when you get that heat of the battle, let's say you've set up your whole life as good as you can to so that temptation is not in front of you, and yet you come into one of those hot moments, the firefight of temptation. What do you got to fight with? And this is what I found in some of my readings is a lot of guys would use this one verse. Let, it, let me read it again. It says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so a lot of guys would say that to themselves, right? I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. So I'm going to honor God with my body. And they'd use that to fight in that moment. Now, I believe that you could use this verse in any moment. I'm, if you, if you didn't know the context was about sexuality or sexual stuff, you could use it for your temptation to be materialistic, right? Not my own, I'm bought with a price, so I'm going to honor God with my finances or with how much I look on Pinterest at things I wish I had or how much I gaze into, uh, you know, the flyers and think about how good it would be to own that car or that item or whatever it is. I believe it could help you with materialism. I think it could help you with being disobedient to parents. That's a sin, by the way, in the Bible. 
Like, I can help you with that. So I don't know, there's not a lot of kids left in the room, but if you're in grades 9 to 12, <laughs> grades 9 to 12, if you're in the room, I can help you with that. Say, okay, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price, so I'm going to honor God with my response to my parents. How about if your temptation is to exasperate your children? Oh, parents, you thought you were going to get off easy. How about exasperating your children? How come you, you know, you just sometimes just pick at them for no reason. Just make them mad. Well, this could help you. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So honor God with your, your words or, or your approach to your children. How about stealing? This could help with stealing. What about if you're unforgiving or uncaring or untruthful or unfaithful? Or maybe not that you are those things, but those are the battles that are, those are the temptations that are, you're fighting on a regular basis. I mean, pick your poison, whatever it is. Greed, lust, fear, anger, whatever it is. What do you have to fight with when temptation comes your way? Well, Jesus showed us the path. He said, it is written. Jesus, I mean, it's Jesus. Do you really need to quote the Bible, Jesus? You're Jesus. You, but again, it causes us to trust him. It's also something that we're called to imitate. So it is written, he says, man shall not live by bread alone. Those of you who are going through the hearing God training, and there's about, well, there's over 100 now. But there's over 100 people going through the Hearing God training here that we're providing here at the church over the next six weeks, or we're two weeks in, four more weeks. Um, you know, that we've, you learned this in the second week, you know that there are two different Greek words. There's actually three, but there's two that we taught last week, Greek words for life. And one is bios, and the other one is zoe. And bios talks about that physical life, like... Uh, I think that's what the devil was getting at here. You need bread to live, Jesus. You want life? You want your bios, your biological, physical life to continue? You need bread, and I'm reminding you of that. And so why don't you ask God to do a miracle to turn these stones into bread for you, if you are the Son of God. And Jesus' response is amazing. He turns it back on him, he turns it back, this temptation back on by not responding about his biological life, but about spiritual life. So his response, um, now I have to find it. I've lost it in my notes. Someone want to read it out loud. Read it out loud to me. Man shall not live by bread alone. Right? In other translations it says, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But that's a different, uh, different accounts. Of course, the different gospels record uh, different parts of the story. Man shall, not live, uh, man shall not live by bread alone. And the live word he uses there is zoe. Man shall not have spiritual vitality and health and life by gluten alone. No, that comes from God. So the devil says, you need food to live, and Jesus says, uh, mankind needs God to live spiritually. And there's a different kind of living. Humans have the capacity to draw on God just like a plant gets life from the sun. And so that's his response to that first temptation. Here's the second one. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world 
And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, Jesus could have just said at that point, I don't think you actually have the authority to do that. I think that would have been a legitimate response to say, I don't think the transaction you're offering is fully trustworthy. In fact, you're a liar. Lying is like, your lips are moving, I know you're lying. You know that song? Uh, that's basically, Jesus could have started humming that at that moment, basically. He says, you're the, because scriptures talk about he's a liar, the father of lies, lies is what he does. So this is a lie. But, he doesn't go there. Could have said that. Uh, but instead, he goes somewhere diff- different. So here's the enemy saying, you can have what's rightfully yours. Is it right for Jesus to have all authority and splendor in the world? The scriptures say yes. But the condition is if you bow your knee to me. And this is the test of idolatry. And in, when you see it in this form, it's pretty simple. Jesus bows before the devil. Okay, uh, I don't even have to know anything about the Bible to think it's wrong, right? I'm pretty sure that's not how it should go, right? If you've never read anything in the Bible, you know this one. You could get this one right on a test, couldn't you? You're like, should Jesus bow to the devil? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, you'd get it right. But why? And here's the other thing. How does that apply to our lives? How do we walk out this example in our lives? Say I said to you, is ice cream your favorite thing? And if you're a little child, you might say yes. Or if you really like haagen you might say yes. And I said to you then in response, if you give your life to Jesus, you'll go to heaven, and there you can have all the ice cream you want. Let me ask you, what is being elevated and exalted in this deal? (laughs) Ice cream. I know the answer is always Jesus, but in this case, it's actually ice cream. (laughs) If you, oh, if you give your life to Jesus, you can have all the ice cream you can want. So the response of the heart is, man, I love ice cream. This Jesus is part of the package? Sure. But man, ice cream. An eternity of ice cream. And, and did you say that if I eat this ice cream, I won't get fat? Oh, yes, I'm in. I'm in. You got me. You had me at ice cream. What was that other guy's name? When God becomes your way to get what you really want, then God is not God in your life. He's not first in your life. And the Bible has a word for it. It's called idolatry. Right? The Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me. And then the second one says, Thou shalt not make a graven image. Now, we don't, rarely do we make graven images like that happened back then. It still happens in the world today, but mostly the things that we idolize or we make idols out of are a little more immaterial. But they're still focused on ourselves. Right? Um, there aren't any children in the room under the age of grade nine. I'm going to say a story. I'm going to tell a story that's a little graphic. So. You don't have any children under grade nine in the room? Okay. When I was in Africa in 2008, 
You hear different news on the other side of the globe than you do here. I didn't hear very many things about what was happening in Canada. Well, nothing. And I heard occasional reports of what was happening in the United States, but only generalized things. But you get all these news reports about what was happening there. One of the news reports that came out was 60 children have been abducted. And uh, thankfully, the authorities caught them as they were trying to cross the border, leaving Burkina Faso, where I was. And I think the end, uh, the end game of where they were going was the, the country of Niger. Not Nigeria, but Niger, a smaller country. I asked the people I worked with, the translators and the people I was over there, because I was just over there for a few weeks doing some sort of scouting out some humanitarian aid opportunities. And while I was there, I asked them, I said, why were these children kidnapped? Like, was this, you know, so they could, you know, was prostitution, child slavery? Okay, this is why nobody is under the age of grade nine is in the room. I said, no, they were to be killed. And their body parts harvested because there's animist religions in Africa that would see if you took certain body parts from a dead child, they could be used in certain superstitious incantations and spells and stuff like that to make you wealthy and to make you prosper and to give you every advantage in life. Now, that's horrifying to us. You might not like that I even told you that story. You might not have wanted to know that part of the world happens or exists. But you know, it's not too many steps away from what actually happens in a more civilized part of the world or what we call the civilized part of the world. How many times do we make decisions that really center around making me prosper, giving me the advantage, getting ahead, at the expense of other people. My proposal is we actually make those decisions almost every day, or we're tempted to make those decisions almost every day. Maybe not in that grand, horrific picture that you're trying to forget already. But selfishness is not something that exists on the other side of the planet only. It's a human condition all the way around the world. And we want to make the whole world about ourselves. That's, our, that's because of the fall, because of how sin entered the world, because of, of mankind's distrust of God, of their, of their pushing back and saying, I want to go my own way. Ever since, we have been going our own way, and often our own way involves uh, making the world about ourselves, being selfish, living for ourselves. You see, is it wrong to want to prosper? No. Is it wrong to want to uh, get ahead in life? I, I don't believe so. I don't think it is. But every good thing can become an idol if they become more important than God. Every good thing. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it is twisted into an evil thing. So the people who live in that area of Niger... Is it, it's not bad to want them to prosper. It's not bad to want their crops to flourish. It's not bad for them to want to uh, rise out of impoverished living into greater development. That's a good thing. 
when that becomes an ultimate thing, all sorts of twisted stuff comes into the strategies of how to get there. And it does for us too. I want to let's take one of the best things we know and love. Okay, I want to give this as an example because I, I, want, I, don't want to, I want to give you one of the best things we know and love. And that's, it's often talked about today. It's called social justice. In a few verses after Jesus goes through this temptation in the wilderness, it's not like a few moments, but he's going to go to uh, Nazareth and he's going to stand up in a synagogue and he's going to read those famous words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. And then he's going to talk about four people groups. He's going to talk about uh, the poor the oppressed, he's going to talk about the blind, poor, oppressed, blind, with one more, captive, and the captive. And he's going to talk about how his mission in this world is going to be set free the captive, uh, sight for the blind, uh, to help the poor, and, and, and to release the oppressed. So it's a pretty ambitious, amazing uh, you could maybe call it a social justice program. I don't know if you don't like that term. Maybe you wouldn't use that. But it's a pretty amazing uh, radical declaration of his intention to bring help and mercy and compassion into the lives of people who are, who are suffering. But all of this that he's going to do stems out of putting God first. Remember, he prayed at his baptism. And he, and, and, and he was aligned with the Father. And he did it along with people who said, we're turning from sin, self-focus, to God. All this is true. And now he's in the crux of a battle. And later he'll make his proclamation about his mission, about his intentions. But Jesus gives us this example. It starts out of, it stems from our relationship with God. So in this church, we're really, we've been super blessed in the last couple of years. We've had some great opportunities open up for us to be able to um, be engaged with our community. I mean, for many years, we've been engaged with the Better Together Food Drive. So over 50% of the food that comes into the food bank in the year comes in through that one night. And we help organize it, and other churches come on side, and other community organizations, and people from the community love it. And it's awesome. But we're involved in food security in the city through this one means, and that is wonderful that we're doing it. And when dozens of Syrian families came to town, we were blessed again. We had an incredible opportunity to go and, and to be those first people who welcoming them to Moose John, welcoming them to Canada, and helping them to figure out how to use their washing machines and, 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 and translating things. And everybody learned how to use Google Translate really fast because we had to communicate. And a lot of you are still in the game, big ways, and you're helping out. You're making a real difference. It's awesome. And we've had a big role to play with, with, uh, with really encouraging empathy in the th city and compassion through Roots of Empathy through that program. So lots of schools in this city have the opportunity to uh, consider what it really is to be human by having a little baby in the, or a toddler in the classroom who teaches them. And, their, and the mother and, and, and the instructor and this wonderful program that's going on in our city, we were able to be, participate in that. And there's lots of other programs that we participated in this city and these are all a good thing. But none of them are an ultimate thing. 
Our love for a neighbor must flow out of our love for the Lord and our dependence on him and not the other way around. Because once we go to the other way around, we get twisted. We might not get twisted right away. We might not get twisted right away. But if you want to do something sustainable for not just five years or ten years, but for generations, let me present to you that you have to have one thing solid, and that is love for God first and love for neighbor as a second. Let, I'm going to give you C.S. Lewis's thoughts on this, and he was writing, I think it's very apropos because he's writing, he wrote this uh, fun little book called The Screwtape Letters. Has anyone ever heard of The Screwtape Letters? Okay, anybody? Okay. So C.S. Lewis, the guy who writes the Narnia books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they made movies. Not all of them, but some of them. Anyhow, he writes this book called The Screwtape Letters in which it's like a senior demon writing to a junior demon. So he's like, you want to know how to tempt Christians? Here's how it's done, kid. You know, and he, he writes this thing. This is what he writes about social justice, which we love and we think is absolutely essential. He says, about the general connection between Christianity and politics, our, our position is more delicate. Now remember, this is a demon writing to a demon, okay? So that's the, how you have to understand the context. So when he says, our enemy, he's talking about God, okay? About the general connection between Christianity and politics, our position is more delicate. Certainly, we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life. For the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. You have to think backwards to understand it, right? So that would be really good, we think. Demons are talking. Major disaster. On the other hand, we do want and want very much to make men treat Christianity as a means. Preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. But failing that, so if they can't get that, we'll settle for this. But failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. Those are his words. I didn't put that in there. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands. And then work on him to the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. For the enemy, that's God, will not be used as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might just as well think they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest chemist's shop. Fortunately, it's quite easy to coax humans round this little corner. So when C.S. Lewis talks about being coaxed around this little corner, he's talking about this shift that happens in us, and it's the shift of idolatry, where it's like, I love God. What does God love? Well, he loves the poor, and he loves the blind, and he loves the oppressed, and he loves the captive. Okay, well, then I'm going to get involved with social justice. That's good. But, and I'm not saying this out of not seeing it. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it. I was a youth pastor for 15 years. So you take kids to go serve somewhere. You go into, you know, the heart of a city and you serve at a soup kitchen. And you think, this is awesome. 
is amazing. This is great. Because we love Jesus, we're doing the stuff Jesus was about. And it is good. But it's turning that little corner that changes the game. And that's when the serving in the soup kitchen or the caring for the poor, all those things, they switch places with Christ. And what happens when they switch places with Christ is now Jesus is just a means to the end. He's just a means. Scriptures tell us that he's the end. What do you get if you become a follower of Christ? What do you get? Well, it's not ice cream. Well, what do you get? It's not wealth. Well, what do you get? It's not even all those other good things. How people talk about peace and joy and purpose. I go to those quickly when people ask me about my faith. I talk about how it does give me peace, how it does give me joy, and how it does give me purpose. I go to those things quickly. But at the end of the day, what do you get? You get God. The created person gets relationship with the one who created him or her. At the end of the day, the end is God. He's not the means. And this is really tricky for us. It's all of us. Well, I'll say it's tricky for me. There's constant temptations that come into my life where it's like, make your life about this. Pursue this like it's ultimate. Run after this like it's most important. Prioritize your life around this like it's the reason you were created. And I get sucked into that. So I, even this year, God showed me a specific area where I was getting sucked into that. Starting to turn that corner. Or at least look around that corner. And I think God, in his mercy, sort of pulled on my shirt and pulled me back to realize this is not what I was made for. I was not made for the accumulation of wealth. Not that it's wrong to accumulate wealth, but that's not ultimate. It's not made for fame. It's not wrong to be famous, but it's not ultimate. Not made to be praised by people. It's sort of nice. Definitely not ultimate. I was made to know God and to enjoy him forever. To be in relationship with God to know my creator and to be one with him, to be united with him, to be aligned with him, to follow him, that he would be my life. So we need to make sure that we don't bow our knee to anything but God. How is our engagement with the community gonna continue? Through a red hot relationship with God. I don't know what the future things are going to be that God will call us into in serving our community. It might not be a food drive. It might not be roots of empathy. It might not be, it might be something totally different. But how are we going to be ready for that moment when that opportunity arises? Hearts that are submitted to God, hearts that are aligned with God, hearts that are sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God, so that when that moment comes, we know, yes, do this. 
Because there's a thousand opportunities that are going to come our way. How are we going to know which ones? How are we going to know which ones to run after? We've got to be close to God. We've got to be aligned with God. We've got to be living for God. Otherwise, something else could, could take that place. We could bow the knee to some other ultimate thing. So Jesus' answer sums it up really well. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Let's get to our third temptation. Said the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now this is, I think, a vision or something. I don't think he actually, they actually walked to Jerusalem. Led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, now the devil is crafty. He saw how basically two times God has quoted scripture back at him. The second one was a quote too. They're both scripture quotes back at him. And he's losing. He's not winning. He's not, his temptations aren't delivering results. Uh, Jesus is not being sucked in. And so... Here he comes with the same kind of language. Just to throw it out there. Just because someone's quoting the scripture at you does not mean they're leading you in the right direction. Okay? You quote me on that. That's why we encourage... In some Christian environments, they don't want you to read along in the Bible. They don't want you to go home and study it for yourself and check it out yourself. They want you to just go, hey, just trust that guy up front. He knows what he's talking about. Let me tell you, the most important thing I will bring you week after week is the reading of the Bible. Right? Jesus himself, when he read Isaiah in the latter part of this chapter, he stood to read the scripture and then he sat for his own commentary. Lots of high churches do the same thing. Do you know that? Have you ever been to a high Anglican church? like in England or something. Anyone ever been there? And there's two podiums, like real ornate podiums, but one is more dominant than the other. Sometimes what they do is they actually have a staircase uh, that goes up to the upper one, and up there they read the Bible. And then down here in this lower area, the pastor gets up and does some commentary. And it's just really a visual to let people know that was the important thing. That's the stuff you can, you can bet your life on. That's the stuff that's solid. This guy might get it wrong now and again. So base your life there. That's, that's what's really important. So the devil led him to Jerusalem and said, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands that they will not, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So... The devil decides, I'm going to quote scripture, and he quotes Psalm 91, one of my favorite. It's one of the ones I memorized growing up. My grandpa told me he'd give me $5 if I did. So I did. And then I found out all the World War II vets who'd memorized that same scripture were so, well, they, well, I memorized it, and then I was supposed to recite it in front of my church. My church was about 20, 30 people, and a third of them were my family. Anyhow, so I stood up at the front, and I recited the scripture, 
And all these World War II vets came up and they all had like a dollar in their hand and they're all shaking my hand afterwards and I just cleaned up. <laughs> I thought I was gonna get five bucks from grandpa and I just like, I was loaded after that. I was just like, because all these guys, remember I saw them 91 because they were going into battle, right? They, they, they wanted to put a sword in their own hands, spiritual sword, when they were in the thick of it, right? So same principle. Anyhow, the devil quotes this about angels catching you if you fall. Now, what's the temptation here? If Jesus did stand on the top of the temple and throw himself off, and they say that there's a corner of the temple that if you do throw yourself off, you will fall not just to the bottom of the ground, but it's the cliff side and you'll fall. I don't know, if, I can't remember, I thought I read 400 feet, but that seems too much. But anyhow, it's this precipitous fall. You'd be dead. Wouldn't be like, ow, I've hurt myself. Just a flesh wound. No, you would really, you'd be done. Just throw yourself off. See if angels will catch you. Now, if, people, if Jesus had done this, people would have instantly recognized, or I think this is part of the temptation, they would have instantly recognized that he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And people would have believed, perhaps, or at least that's the temptation. Jesus did a lot of miracles where people didn't believe, so maybe it's not a fair offer. But it's the temptation to take a shortcut. See, Jesus was called to, to go to the cross. But here, here's an opportunity. Just skip the cross. Just jump. Have the angels catch you. Have everyone acclaim you as the Son of God, as the, as, as, as the Israelites' long-awaited Messiah, as the one we've all been hoping for and waiting for. Take a shortcut. Skip the suffering. Skip the cross. Be the Son of God without submitting to the Father. It's hard to get your head around that. A rebellious Son of God. But Jesus' answer said, I, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, it's lack of trust in God and his plan that causes us to test him. See, when the devil had finished all this tempting, it said, he left him until an opportune time. This last little one, just putting the Lord your God to a test, it's when we, it's when we say, I don't trust you, God. I think you have to prove yourself to me or show yourself to me in such a way that... Uh, you know, I can obey or I can follow. And you know what? I think there's, I don't have it all figured out. There's probably some gray areas in this. My, my own father, uh, a Methodist school, a Methodist church boy when he was, lived in England, when he got into his 20s, his, his prayer, basically his breaking up with God prayer was basically that. I don't believe in you anymore. If you're real, you're gonna have to prove yourself to me. God in his graciousness sent a man named Irwin within the next couple days to intersect his life and, uh, and to start showing him what he never learned growing up in his little church, that he could have a relationship with God. He could have a relationship with God through what Jesus had done on the cross. So God is gracious with these things. So I, I don't know how it all works. Uh, but putting God to the test is often a, a sign of a lack of, of trust. And, and I guess if you're... If you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're not sure about those things, uh, 
you know, the verse I've been quoting lately is, uh, I think it's Jude 1, 20, it's 20 or 22, where it just says, be merciful to those who doubt. You think, well, if God wanted us to know that and for us to be that way with other people who doubt, well, then he must be pretty gracious to people who doubt too. So I'm not saying that God isn't merciful to those who doubt, because obviously he's calling us to do that. But I think what really delights God as we go on this journey of, of finding him and following him is when we just trust. It's when we say, God, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I'm suffering. I don't know why I'm going through this struggle. I don't know why I'm always, I keep banging my head against this same sin. I don't know why I keep falling and failing. But I know that you're good. And I trust in your goodness and trust in your plan and I trust that you're working all these things out for my good and, and that at the end of the day, you're for me, you're not against me. You're not treating me as my sins deserve, but you're showing grace and mercy and you know the way I'm formed and you're gracious and compassionate and you, and you care for me. I think that's what delights God is when we say, I'm not always testing you to see if, if you're there, God. I, in faith, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to trust you. My dad, when he got a few days into following Jesus, a little while later after he'd made his break up with God prayer, he made a commitment to God prayer. <laughs> but he came to Irwin, the guy who helped him find Jesus, and he basically came to Irwin and he said, uh, I don't feel like I'm a Christian. And I think lots of Christians can relate. You know, some days you feel like euphoric about who God is and what he's doing in your life and the plans he has for you. And then other days you don't feel that way. And he came to Irwin and he said, I, I don't feel like a Christian. And Irwin was sort of a down-to-earth guy. And, and he, said, uh, he said, it's like a train, Colin. The front end of the train is, uh, is the facts. And the back end of the train is the feelings. And um, the fact is Christ has died for you to make you his own. So you receive that by faith, what he's done. And walk in that by faith. And you know what? The feelings will come and go. Or they'll catch up later sometimes. But they're the back end of the train. You can't live your life just by your feelings or your heart will deceive you. Live it by faith. And I think that's what God truly delights in. It's what pleases him. It's when we operate in faith. So I'm going to end this. I've got a whole bunch of scriptures here at the end, but I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to just selectively edit here at the end. Let me tell you one story at the end. I think that's where we'll go. lost my scripture, but I'll just have to paraphrase. I was sitting with a guy who was very, very discouraged. Um, his battle had been the battle of pornography. And uh, he was fighting, trying 
and losing on a regular basis. And um, so I, I said to him, I said, I was meeting with him over a sort of a two-day period. He'd, he'd come from a different city to come visit. And I said, okay, let's take a break today, and we'll meet again tomorrow. And he said, I'll, I'm sort of stumped on how to help you. I don't, you know, I tried to, you know, the, the basic stuff, like, you know, remove temptation from your life as much as you can, and, and uh, you know, get yourself busy doing good things and try to replace this with other, you know, lots of different things. And, and here's a scripture you can use as a sword, and all those things, they were good. But he just seemed so discouraged. So, um, so I, I said to him, I said, uh, I'm going gonna, gonna to pray about it tonight and we'll come back together tomorrow. So that night, the verse I got was, in your struggle against, um, oh man, I, I wish I wasn't paraphrasing. Someone, someone can Google this one. Oh, thank you. Saved by... Saved by the tech guys. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Let's stop right there. And I thought, when I got that verse come to my mind, I thought, that is not what this guy needs. This is the last thing he needs. Right? This is the hoorah of, you know, scripture verses. It's like, now this sometimes is what you need. To be honest, I can think of a time in my life where I needed to be told regularly that I was being a wimp. And it was, I, there was a year where I traveled with an evangelism and drama team all across Western Canada. We did like positive message things in high schools. So we'd stand up in high schools and do stuff about drugs and alcohol and peer pressure. Sort of fun, great year. But we lived in a van, basically, or at billets houses. And that van really stunk after a while. And, you know, just do a year of traveling in a van with 10 people and, it, you know, you get edgy and you get, anyhow, sometimes I would complain. And my friend Glenn, who was with me on the team, his response was the same every single time. He'd say, Steve, you haven't suffered enough. <laughs> of course, he's referencing scriptures that talk about, you know, I want to know Christ. I want to, I want to embrace him and all that he is, even to share in his sufferings. Right? Those kind of verses. And I was like, oh, you got me. And it worked. It worked. Every time Glenn said, you haven't suffered enough, I'd go, okay, suck up my bad attitude, get a good one, let's go. Right? It worked every single time. At the end of the year, I started, I got my sort of start as being a pastor in a church up in northern Saskatchewan. I was there for eight years before I came here. I've been here for 14. So it was my very first year of, you know, being a, a pastor in a small church and there was one morning in particular where Glenn's words came back to me. I, uh, I had a meeting with two people coming up. There's more than that in the meeting, but these two people was what I was fixated on because I knew they had some very sharp criticism for some of the uh, decisions I'd made. And I was thinking every defensive thought I could think about in getting ready for this meeting. I thought about how I was going to fly back with this. I had this zinger in my pocket. I was ready with this. Like, I had, I was bringing my guns to town, baby. This was going to be the showdown at the OK Corral. That morning, in the mailbox of the church, now this is the 1990s, pre-internet, a VHS tape comes from Voice of the Martyrs, and it's some agency, and I, I, I put it in the VCR, and I play it, and it's telling the stories of people who are giving their lives for Christ around the globe. Now, 
like not ancient history, but well, at the in the 90s. For some of you, that is ancient history, but in the 90s. And I'm watching this video, and I'm like, wow, that's super inspiring. Then I start preparing again for, for this meeting, but something's changed. Before, I'm ready to, I'm going to take these people down. They aren't going to mess with me. And suddenly I'm like, oh, people who do the same thing I do, which is follow Jesus, die for it. And Glenn Levy's words came back to me. Steve, you haven't suffered enough. <laughs> I came into that meeting totally changed. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be defensive. I'm going to really listen. If what they have to say really hurts, I'm going to suck it up. I'm not going to fight back with some of the zingers that would have inflicted hurt on the other side. So, sometimes that works. Sometimes that's exactly what you need. I bet right now, probably one in ten of you needs that. In your struggle against sin, you haven't suffered enough. Only one in ten of you probably needs that this morning. The other nine, you need something different. I'm going to share that with you. But I bet some of you, you just need that. You just need a pep talk. Say, you know what? I need to just fight this fight. I need to just, like, get in, get in the game and start changing things and making change. I need to... Stop being a victim to this temptation that keeps coming out. I need to, some of you need, to, it's, you need to man up and that's it. I bet it's not most of you. When God gave me this scripture for this guy who was suffering so much, I was like, no. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to, the, resisted to the point of shedding your blood? I was like, oh, this is not gonna work. He is like, a bruised reed, a, a, a wick that's about to go out, he is going to get snuffed by this. So I came into the meeting, and we started talking, and I sort of forgot about this scripture. And then, and then he said, well, you know, did you come up with something last night that can help me? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, I thought of this verse, and I thought, this is not right. What am I doing? Why would God give me that verse? Why would he bring it to my mind? So I grabbed my Bible and I opened it to him and, and you know, we're sitting there together and I said, I'm just going to read this to you. You tell me if it resonates with you or not. I'm thinking, it will not. He's already under this weight of guilt that he's such a terrible servant of God because he struggles so much with his pornography habit. And I thought, this is just going to be heaping it on more. This is not going to work. Anyhow, I read the verse to him. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that's when I noticed the next verse. You want to put the next verse up there? And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. First part would have crushed him, but the second part, that's where God wanted me to go. God just gave me the only verse I knew. I didn't have this part memorized. 
He just knew he could get me echolocated to the right location that his spirit could do the rest of the job. And we just went here. We said, you know what? You've been serving God. You've been trying to be this good servant and, 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 and live up to a certain standard. And God wants you to know that he is your father. And maybe you can't tell your own earthly dad about this struggle. Maybe it's too shameful for you. But your father knows and he cares. And every time you're in that moment of temptation and you feel so terrible, I want to let you know, your father, he loves you. You want to go to the next line? Do you have the next line up there? Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And so we just began to talk about that. Do you understand that he's accepted you as his son? Do you understand that the same God the Father who spoke over Jesus at the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that he takes pleasure in how he created you, that you are a unique, one-of-a-kind creation of God, and he delights in the way he made you. Now all we got to figure out is to take the way that he made you, the way that he shaped you, and find a way to channel that into bringing him glory. And as we began to work through these verses, I could see the lights going on in his eyes. It had been a long time since he delighted in God, since he'd felt the love of the Father in his life. And it was that as we worked through those things, we just kept bringing it back to. But remember, this is not about earning God's approval through your behavior. Jesus did that for you on the cross. This is about delighting in who he made you to be and shifting your life to serve him because of that. And things began to change. Things began to change inside of him as we began to talk and work. So today, some of you need the pep talk. Some of you need the pull it together. And, but you've already received that. You know who you are, right? You're like, okay, the man up verse, that was for me. But some of you need this. Some of you need to know that this same God who sees you in your struggle against sin loves you. And he's there to help you. He's there to walk with you. He doesn't just give us a, link, a list of do's and do not do's and then say, you're on your own. Just like Jesus, he wants us to be full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. So his power is available to us who are weak. So many times, the victories I've experienced over the sin in my life have come through that realization where I've said, I can't do this, but God, you can. I've cried that out. I've yelled that out. I've said that through tears, through gritted, gritted teeth. And that has brought the victory in my life. Dependence on God. God, my attempts to win in this area of sin have led to no victory. I can't win, but you are in me. Jesus in me, the Spirit in me can. And he's led me through to victory, and he'll do that in your life as well. If you come like Jesus, dependent on the Father, full of the Holy Spirit, following his leading, depending on his strength, He'll lead you to victory. Let's stand.